Hey, Crawl Space listeners, Lance here. Tim and I wanted to share a great episode that originally aired in October of last year on our other show, Missing. And this episode is part two of the two-part conversation with a person who probably does not need an introduction at this point. You can listen to part one that aired on Crawl Space on Wednesday, January 10th. Private investigator Greg Overacker joins to discuss his new book, The Hunt for Brianna Maitland, the relentless pursuit of answers to one of Vermont's biggest mysteries. And for those of you who haven't read this book, there are links in the show notes. Tim and I highly recommend this book. It's an incredible, fascinating story. It's personal. And as most of you know, Greg is the primary investigator into Brianna Maitland's disappearance, which took place on March 19th, 2004. He connected with Brianna's father, Bruce, in 2006, and for nearly 20 years, he's been working diligently on Brianna's case. And a quick housekeeping note before moving on to the episode, Tim and I wanted to let our fine listeners know that over the next few weeks, we will be restructuring a bit, which will likely impact the release schedule. But fear not, this is only temporary, and we'll be back on a regular schedule before you know it. And we thank you so much for your patience and understanding in this matter. Again, this is part two. You can listen to part one on Crawl Space, which aired Wednesday, January 10th. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim, because we have a sensational second part of this conversation with our old friend. But Tim, are you feeling the same way this time around as you were before? How, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm excited to continue this conversation with private investigator turned author Greg Overacker all about the disappearance of Brianna Maitland. So make sure to check out Greg's book at bloatedtoe.com and make sure to click on that link in the show notes. And if you didn't hear part one, that was aired just a few days ago. So go back to the previous episode of Missing and you'll hear part one. And again, this is a continuation of that conversation. I think the, I guess, elephant in the room or the elephant of the story is the group of people that are heavily featured in your book that operated and ran the drug trafficking and and did the drugs and dealings and uh, murders and all of that. Uh, Can you, without, I guess, terrifying people, can you go into some of these characters? Because we've talked about them in lesser detail than your book describes and your book is like staggering in the sense of how brutal these people were and how out of their minds they were when they were in a desperate situation over something like $200 and the, what they do, the lengths they would go for something like that. Can you talk about these people a, a little bit? I think the big one is, um, so there was a woman in Burlington who killed a girl in her home over drugs and when she ended up going through her court process and stuff, she mentioned Brianna's name. And her sister actually gave a statement to police. The police had gone to her sister's home and uh, we're going to arrest her son on a petty warrant. 
And uh, she started screaming and saying, you know, if you take my son, I won't tell you what happened to Brianna Maitland. And of course the cop, it was a high profile case in Vermont and Vermont being so sparsely populated, even though it's an hour South, they're very familiar with it. So he was like, what are you talking about? He took her into a room in the presence of another officer and he recorded the, the conversation and she tells this God awful story of dismemberment and, and, and just and murder and all this other stuff. So then we we actually came upon that police report by happenstance, and then we went and found it. We had to. We were very fortunate that we found it. I mean, it wasn't public information. It wasn't something we would even know existed. So once we got involved in that and looked into it deeper, what we found out was that someone that was in – Brianna's social hemisphere, who was Ramon Ryan's, had moved down south to Burlington, had taken up residency with a young girl. That was the young girl that got killed. So now he's kind of around Brianna when she goes missing. Now he's with a girl that gets murdered. And at the time, you know, he didn't know what happened to her. He th- there was another girl that went missing near him, you know. But anyway, Ellen Ducharme, the girl that killed her, Brought and her sister brought Brianna's name into this big saga of, of murder. So when you look into that it, it, and you look into Ellen and how, what a traumatic life she led, and that's in, in detail in the book. And I think when people read it, they're aghast. I mean, my brother, when he read it, called me and said, I, this is just hard to absorb that this, the people, a person would live this way and be this horribly mistreated and all this other stuff. So if that's what you're talking, you're referencing. And then of course the, the offshoot of that, which is a man who lives in Burlington to this day, who of course, Ellen's still in prison many years later. She's been in prison since 2004, but this other person has been involved in another murder and disposing of that girl's body. And he's got a rap sheet, the size of a dictionary, <laughs> which I know Lance appreciated. Pages and pages of his arrest record. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's ridiculous. And and you even did you did you even say like there was a couple that you didn't put in there? I mean, yeah, it's pages of like just to emphasize the point of how much of a career criminal, like literally the definition of a career criminal, everything you could imagine on this. Oh yeah, this was a a person who, given choices, he was always going to make the wrong one every single time. He was consistent though. Yeah, and he got caught every single time. Yeah, and he, he would get caught every single time, and he would always do the same thing. He would blow the other person in to try to get a better deal. Even if it, even if they didn't do anything, he would try to blow them in. And that's Tim Cruz we're talking about? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's funny because his name always came up, and, you know, and people always talked about his past, and we knew about his past and stuff like that. But when you actually go and you get all the information and put it down on paper and look at it and go, Wow. And then when they went and picked him up, he had murdered a, a, a boy in um, outside of Essex. Was it Westford? It's it's not far from Burlington. He had killed him, and then and nobody knew where he was. He was missing. His name's Craig Jackman. He was missing for I think under just under five years. But he, when they ended up picking up Cruz for that murder, he was in California in jail, and we couldn't get the records out of California to find out what he was in jail there for. So to this day, we don't know. They flew him back here. I mean, he had taken a young 16-year-old boy into the woods and, and, and hit him in over the head with an axe multiple times. And then, and of course, got released. You know, it's Vermont. So they just kind of say, oh, he, he didn't mean it. 
he killed somebody, killed this poor kid, 16-year-old Craig Jackman, by chopping him in the head with an axe numerous times. And you said, because it's Vermont, we need to elaborate on this. How how in the world does somebody walk? Lou and I talk about this all the time. And the running joke is, in order to go to jail up there, you have to put a pickaxe in the back of the governor's head. Because it just, they, I, I don't know what the deal is. They'd... You look at Ellen's rap sheet. I mean, she started collecting charges when she was 16 years old. And there's it. I went and would go to the public. It, this is the way it used to work. I don't know if it works this way anymore. They have a public terminal you can go to in the in uh, the courthouse. And you can yourself enter information about someone and print their criminal record. And uh, so I went in there. And this was years ago. And a woman was helping me out. And I'm like, what do I do? How do I do this and this and that and everything? And she goes, and she goes, tell me how much it costs and everything and per page and everything. And she's like, okay, if you want, I'm print it. And I printed it. And the printer just kept going. It's just kicking out tons of information. I walked out of there with a stack because the people I was looking at were just, it was just a revolving door. I mean, when you look at Cruz's rap sheet, the first thing you're going to think of is why isn't this person in prison for the rest of his life? He would go in and he would get charged with a habitual offender. And every time he would say, you know, he would give over information or something to the prosecutor so they would drop the habitual offender's charge. He should have been in prison for the rest of his life years ago. He's a free man today. He murdered a 16-year-old kid and left him in the woods. Parents were in agony for years until they found his skull. Eventually he got convicted of that. You know, Legia, he took her body out in the woods and left it out in the woods like garbage. You know, got six years for that because he turned information on somebody. You know, you'd be blown away by that. So Tim Cruz, did he and Brianna, did they know each other as well? So that that's the part of the book is that what it does, if anything else, is it dispels all these rumors that go around. And, you know, it's funny when you look at Maura Murray's uh, Facebook pages and you look at Brianna's Facebook pages, Maura's are extremely active people discussing things and stuff like that. Brand is not so much. And I think part of that is because we come out and tell people that's all garbage. The stuff you're talking about is garbage. So people stop talking about it pretty much. In Moore's case, they just keep churning that garbage. Cruz, first of all, we think he was in jail at the time. And that's kind of explained in there. But also, there's nothing that would ever definitively make you think he knew her or had anything to do with her. So, Okay. You know, there was always this, this talk of Brianna spent time in Burlington. As far as we know, that's complete and utter bullshit. Again, she's a 17-year-old kid. You know, and people people think she's like an adult that's traveling around the state and mute, being a drug mule and all this other stuff. And you talk to her friends and like, there's no time for that. She's not doing that stuff, you know. She was, she was a kid. But she did know Ramon Ryans. That's the connection. Right. So that's the connection. So... So Ramon's girlfriend, Ligia Collins, was murdered by Ellen Ducharme, and Tim Cruz and Moses Robar disposed of Ligia's body. Yeah. So Ramon Ryans had nothing to do with that murder. He didn't know. He is actually the one who reported her missing. Right. Um, Ligia missing, which I thought was, was interesting because just a few months earlier, an acquaintance of his, Brianna Maitland, went missing. It is interesting, yeah. You know, but they're involved in stuff that's dangerous and unsavory, you know, he he is. 
And yeah, but he's the connection connection to Burlington there. But is that just an insane coincidence then? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I don't want to give the whole book away. And and, and I think that uh, that chapter is pretty intense. I mean, mo- a lot of people approach me about it and say, holy shit, you know, that's that's a lot of really intense information. But you have to remember that Ellen and her sister brought Brianna into this story. They're the ones that, that came forward and said stuff about Brianna. And they are, they say a lot of things that border on delusional or are delusional. So you have to, you have to really look at it. And that's what we did. We looked at it really closely, as closely as we could. You know, and I tell this in the book too, that, you know, I'm not privy to everything that the police did, but uh, they looked at it pretty intensely too. They knew, by the way, you know, people give the Vermont State Police a lot of grief, a lot of grief. And in the book, I kind of explain that at the end and, and, and have my opinion about that. They knew when I was walking into court and getting retrieving documents. They knew. They were on top of stuff. Word would get back to me that they knew what I was doing, and they were working hard. So, Who would deliver the word back to you? It would come back through the family and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of the family, Bruce Maitland writes a great forward to your book, and he also provides a series of photographs of Brianna, a couple of them we have seen circulating on the internet and several of them no one's ever seen as far as I know uh, there are pictures in there that I'd never seen and these are ones that were provided by Bruce Uh, what was striking to you about his willingness to give you these photos that seem very personal and how was that incorporated into the book where where did you find the right like the appropriate moment to put it in the book so, you know, that there's that thing again where, you know, I, I know this huge group of people from doing this for so many years. There's, and you know that there's a huge following where everybody knows everything you can possibly absorb publicly about the case. So when you, but you have to put in those pictures that have been going around for the people who don't, people who buy the book and don't know anything about it. They want to see those pictures that have been going around forever. Then Bruce gives me these pictures that are no one's ever seen. And he wouldn't even physically give them to me. He's like, these are mine. You know, I'll share them, but I'm not giving you the physical picture. He would scan them and send them to me so that I could have, have them, but he would keep possession of them. So that was important to him. Um, by the way, before I forget, the other night, one of Brianna's friends sent me an article and she said, I want you to see this. And it was uh, one of those articles you see like on pops up on Facebook or something about the case. And it's it's, a, it's an overview. And she had actually commented on it and, and told the writer how bad of a job she did. And um, there was so much, so many mistakes in it and stuff that I, I, I commented on it and I said, this article is garbage. I'm stupider for having read it because it, it pisses me off. <laughs> and anyway. When, one thing I didn't know when looking at those pictures, or maybe I did, but it just, it's like chilling. Like when you show the dates and, and there's a digital picture of Brianna and it was the day before, right? The day before her yeah, disappearance. Her yeah, there's two from the day, yeah. the night prior to her going missing, and there's a cu- at least a couple from the night prior to that. Yeah, there's a popular picture of her where it's sort of her profile, and she's kind of half looking at the camera and smiling, but it's not a big smile. And you guys know the picture I'm talking about, and that was the night before, right? Yes. And that's a picture that comes up in the top search. When you search Brianna Maitland, you'll see this picture. I don't know how many people don't know that that's, that's a good point. Before. That's a great point, actually, because you 
you start to get dumbed down from all the information that you get. And when you see that picture, you, you go, okay, you see all the picture. It's a nice picture or whatever, but you don't realize the significance of it. the significances of it is that it was the night prior. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's, that's, that's that awful part of getting information regurgitated at you all the time without someone explaining to you the importance of it and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Right. I believe I believe in one of those photos she was coloring eggs with her friend. Yeah. Um, dying dying eggs for, for Easter. Um so yeah, I mean, and just, just a couple days later, obviously everything was, was so different. So Shauna the night that spent the few couple nights there prior, with her prior to her disappearance. Um there's this really important thing to know about that. So, you know, Branna had the friends that she got she was at the party with that she got in the fight with 20 something days prior to her disappearance, which, you know, everybody gravitated to that that must have something to do with it and stuff. She had that group of friends and then she had friends like Shauna who were kind of separate. They didn't, those, those girls didn't commingle. They didn't, weren't friends with each other. They knew of each other, but they weren't friends with each other. So you, when you talk to Shauna or you talk to those other girls, you get two different perspectives and that's really important. Now, when I came up to Vermont two or three weekends ago, Three weekends ago, I did an interview, a radio interview in Waterbury. I went out to dinner with Shauna and her sister, Andrea, and her uh, fiancé, Charlie. And they give you their point of view, which is really interesting. I mean, Andrea said she was like my my little sister, you know. And Shauna just absolutely adored Brianna, loves her. And um, spent a lot of time with her there. But the girls that were at the party that she hung around with, when this whole par- fight happened, they were mad at Brianna because Brianna had spent time with a boy with one of them's boyfriend. She was out of town. That's how the fight evolved. So they were mad at her. So what happened in essence is they all kind of got upset with her. She was upset. They weren't hanging around there at the last couple few weekends or a few weeks. In essence, they weren't monitoring her anymore. In other words, just naturally from being around those girls and the phone call exchanges and all that stuff under normal circumstances, they would have been monitoring her life. She may have said something to them. They may have seen something. Instead, there was radio silence and that's that led to her being kind of out there without without being monitored. I mean, you think about that every day when you get up and go about your way, you're being monitored without even knowing it you're, you, because of the people you see and you have interactions with and stuff like that and your loved ones and stuff. But uh, that fell by the wayside. So Shauna was incredibly important. I told her that after dinner. I said, you know, the information that she had given without her, maybe her knowing certain things or about certain things was extremely important and a peek into a window into that, what was going on. What, what was so different about Shauna's um, perspective of, of Brianna that, uh, that differed from, from her other friends? You know, Shauna for, for starters was uh, when you look at everybody we dealt with up there, you know, she wasn't into the drug culture and all that stuff. She just didn't do that stuff. She had a different life going on. You know, again, she wasn't hanging around with a bunch of people on that side of Brianna's life. So she just, she she had a different type of relationship with her, you know. 
which was kind of wholesome. And Brianna was spending time with her family. She was going, she went there two nights prior to her disappearance for St. Patty's day and celebration and just kind of hung out with her family and stuff like that. And that pic, those pictures are in there. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So when Brianna went missing, she had been staying at Jillian's house with Jillian and her father and Sheldon in driving to work and back. So that wasn't a horribly long ride either. She was, so she was en route from work to Jillian's home when she went missing. Right. And I think that's important to mention because people get all caught up in the drugs and all of that and that seedy underbelly. And she had an option when she left school. She had an option to not get her GED. When she left home, she had an option to hang out with those people and live in those environments. But instead, she went to Sheldon. And and it seemed to me like maybe trying to put a little space in between herself and that lifestyle and then hanging out um, in those wholesome environments that you that you're talking about. I think after that fight, she realized she screwed up and she just was being real low key. I'm pretty sure that that's what happened. You can almost sense it when you talk to people that she realized she screwed up and. She upset her friends who were really important to her. And, you know, her, her friends say that that stuff would have blown over, but they were mad at her, no doubt. So I hope that came across in the book that the stuff that was going on, like with the fight and all this, you know, people insist on on saying that the fight had something to do with her going missing and stuff like that. It's just like informational fog. It's looking back and trying to make things fit. In other words, instead of following any evidence of what happened to her, you're going back and saying, this is something to do with this. It ha- this has to be cause and causation. And, you know, when it doesn't, it's it's informational fog. You know, the girl that she got in a fight with punched her in the face a couple of times. That leap from that to murder is huge. Right. I'd have to see evidence of anything like that to believe it. I just don't believe it. Even though uh, charges were dropped um, because Brianna went missing. So theoretically, um, the person who hit... Brianna had something to gain, but you're still saying it's a it's a huge leap from um, yeah. a couple of punches to uh, making someone go missing. I think so. I think for sure. I, for somebody to say I'm going to beat somebody up is one thing. For them to say I'm going to kill them. Right. You know? And again, we're talking about kids. That's another thing that gets lost in the mix. These are kids we're talking about, you know, 16, 17-year-old kids. So. Okay, so there was the fight, there is the drug scene and culture around Brianna at that time as well, um, but it seems like, in, in your opinion, those don't necessarily have anything to do with where Brianna is now. In the book, you wrote about predators of interest. Can we go over some of those? Yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah, very interesting, because if you exclude those two points in Brianna's past, what are you left with? Well, so unlike other states, like here in New York, you know, who would, who would think an hour away in Syracuse, something had something to do with here or an hour away in Albany or whatever. But in Vermont, it's very much, it's very different. If you live in St. Albans, you know people that live in Burlington, the friends of yours, and it's it's not that far away. It's you know, and it, the whole state is that way. I mean, it's because it's so sparsely populated. So when there's crimes that happen in one area, it's it's considered the backyard of everywhere. So Israel Keys comes up. So Keys killed a couple in Vermont, 
And so he was always, people wondered about him. And oddly, he, you know, he committed crimes near where I live in New York. And he was thought to actually rob a bank really close to where I live. Um, and there's a, a woman missing here he was kind of suspected of and stuff like that. But um, the FBI came forward and said uh, he was somewhere else at the time. And supposedly they know that through financial records. Um, but he was interesting. And then, you know, there's a whole bunch of them in there. Um, it explains each one in detail. Peter Johns was a man who hid in a general store on Route 118, hid in the closet. Young girl was working there. And I don't know if it was, I can't remember if it was after hours, after she closed up or after everyone left, but he came out of the closet and attacked her. And uh, that was really brutal. He, he got her on the floor and was ramming her head against the floor. Um, she, he ended up dragging her out to his vehicle. He had parked it around behind the store. She got away from him, took a handful of hair out on his, on her way. She ran across the road and got, you know, you know, you're in Vermont again. It's like a Hamlet probably. And she ends up at a house and they call the police. He gets picked up. He got, you know, it's Vermont. He got almost no time for it. I think he got two years and was released in less than that, whatever. But that was Route 118, which is Route 118 is where Brianna went missing. And I, I can't remember how close it is to the actual spot, but it was years prior. He, and he was back out of jail when it happened. Uh, Howard Godfrey, which is one that uh, I should have elaborated more on in the book, and I'm sorry I didn't. But uh, a girl named Patricia Scoville went missing in Stowe. She had moved from Boston. She was a young girl. Again, 100 pound. I don't remember how old she was. I'd have to look 20-year-old or something like that or 22-year-old or something. She had moved to Stowe, which if you've ever been to Stowe, there's not much of a population there. She was only there for a few weeks and she went missing. Her parents ended up, this is a really interesting aspect of her case, is her parents ended up pushing to have Vermont get a T DNA repository where criminals would have to donate their DNA. And they finally got it through, believe it or not, politicians objected to it. They had to fight it out. Who objects to something like that? Nice to know politicians are looking out for you. <laughs> and um, once it got up and running, it solved cases immediately. And one of the cases it solved was their own daughter's murder. The man that, that did it, Howard Godfrey, had attacked a woman. Um, he was working for the Burlington Free Press. He had gotten a job to, I don't know, deliver papers or something. And she came to his house to go over the billing with him and stuff, how to submit his, his paperwork. And uh, he got up to get a drink of water and hit her over the back of the head with a mallet, was assaulting her. She fought him off. I should have went into detail about that because it's a, it's a really wild story. But uh, he got convicted, had to submit his DNA, and it got him busted for the murder of Patricia Scoville. So that was an interesting case. Then there was one that we picked up on, a few of them that we picked up on early on that we looked into and stuff. And Lou has unique perspectives on these cases because he, you know, he knows what he's doing. But uh, one of them was Gerald Montgomery, um, who killed Laura Winterbottom in Burlington. Uh, he's still in prison. He'll be in prison for years. One of the more no notable ones is Brian Rooney. Uh, Brian Rooney killed Michelle Gardner Quinn in Burlington, abducted and killed her, which is an extremely sad story. She was a college student in Burlington, and her parents were there for parents' weekend. And um, they went out to dinner together, probably all the parents did with their kids that night. And uh, she went out for drinks with her friends afterwards, and they went back to their hotel room, and 
we're going to get together the next day for the rest of the parents weekend or whatever. She disappeared. They ended up finding out that, uh, of course, this mad search went on. I'm sure the parents just turned their lives inside out at the time. But the police ended up finding footage of her walking down the street with Rooney. One of her friends, she had walked up to a guy, Rooney, and said, uh, can I borrow your cell phone? She'd lost her friends in the mix. There's crowded people, crowded bars that night. She called one of them. They didn't answer. And they called back and Rooney answered the phone. Said something about, oh, the little hottie that's with me or something like that. But uh, she disappears. They ended up finding her. Luckily, someone stumbled upon her body in a rock crevice uh, while they were hiking. It was five miles from where he lived. He had taken her out of Burlington towards where he lived. I think it was up in Essex. But he went to trial. And they had a uh, his DNA from a rectal swab. And he still denied it was him. Nope, not me. And uh, the statistics of the chances of it being him in the book are pretty interesting. It was it was one in 295 quadrillion, and he still denied it was him. One, one quadrillion is a thousand billion, and the Earth's population is 7.75 billion. But it wasn't him. It was a reasonable doubt, though. Yeah, I don't know if that's any reasonable doubt there. <laughs> <laughs> and then they tried, his lawyers tried, of course, there's a automatic appeal. His lawyers tried to say that he beat, he beat her to death and strangled her and, uh, and raped her. And his attorneys tried to say, because you can't prove that she died during the rape, it's not aggravated murder. Therefore, this should all be thrown out. Courts disagreed with that. Yeah, good, good. It sounds pretty desperate. <laughs> yeah, so he's not he's not getting out. But uh, he was one of the more interesting ones, and I can't remember who else is in there, but there's a few. You wrote a little bit about false confessions in the book, and um, it's really interesting to hear everything that goes on in a missing person's investigation, and still there's nothing to really grasp onto. Yeah. I think you you sort of uh, captured that feeling in the book really well. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about uh, false confessions and, and what that's like? Yeah, I didn't go into that a lot, but there's you know there was Ellen Ducharme's thing where she told so many stories it just got it was just distracting. I think part of the time she was at least part of the time she was just throwing stuff at the wall to see what would stick because she was trying to figure out a way to get out of a murder charge, which is bringing a missing girl into your case to try to get out of a murder charge is abhorrent. Then Soto, the Joker, uh, who was another person who was in, in the lore of all this that people thought was involved, he would constantly tell people that he killed her and buried her in his well behind his home and stuff. So that's just bizarre. And, of course, when the police go to him, and these guys that are – in the system in a revolving kind of way, it doesn't phase them much to talk to the police because they know they can't be convicted of something that there's no evidence on. And so then they would talk to him. He would say, nah, I'm just shooting off my mouth. Just trying to scare people and stuff. You know, you got it's something to keep in mind is most people don't have this in their life. People that live really controlled lives and just go to their office every day and, you know, go golfing on the weekends and stuff. They don't realize that there's people out there that you can't believe a thing out of their mouth. That everything they do is to cheat you, to rob you, to lie to you, to manipulate you. And they're just 
awful fucking people. And there's a lot of them out there. It's just that most people don't have that live normal lives, don't have contact with those kind of people. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And getting involved in this so personally with Bruce and with Lou and friends and even with us, like how do you keep out your own personal opinions? How do you stay on the fence of it could be this or it could be this and not let your opinion or your theories sort of navigate your narration? I don't know. I talk a lot differently in private than I do here publicly. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I have... I take everybody's information and try to find the truth, you know, and it's good when you got people like Lou and Bruce that, you know, they don't have time for bullshit. It's funny because you see the difference between when you're talking to people who are giving you tips and stuff like that or, or want to help, they will try to make things fit a scenario. They'll try to plug things in to make things fit. Lou, for an example, does the opposite. He will shoot down everything you see. He will tell you what's wrong with everything that you're proposing. That's the way you're supposed to do that. It doesn't work. You know, he'll shoot it down. So you'll, you'll start to realize, oh, okay, this doesn't, this isn't functional. This is, there's no way that this could be true. That's the way you should decipher things. You know, you know, what, what is, first of all, if somebody tells me something that's bullshit, especially on purpose for there ever on, I'm going to question everything that they say. This is something that's grown with me over the years, looking back now, even at relationships I've had and friends that I've had and stuff like that. I'm realizing now how much I've grown and how much less I withstand from people and just tell them right up front, I just, I don't want a part of this if it's not the truth. I don't care what I want to hear. I want to hear the truth. All right. So where can our listeners get your book? It's sold specifically through my publisher, uh, which is Bloated Toe Enterprises, which is a funny name, but it's a it's a reference to hiking in the Adirondacks. My publisher, by the way, is awesome. It's just a wonderful people. Um, he's he's one of my favorite authors, Lawrence Gooley, and he's got some great books. If you go to the site to order the book, look at some of his other books. He's got a a book about Robert Garrow who, who killed campers uh, in, up in the Adirondacks, and it, it's a phenomenal book. What was the other one? Oh, Escape from Danamora. One's called the ones about Garrow's called Terror in the Adirondacks, but there's a lot of other stuff in there too that's that's fantastic. He does a lot of like uh, historical stuff for the Adirondacks in, in true crime. But if you Google the name "The Hunt for Brianna Maitland," it'll come up. You can order it there, or you can order it directly through me, and I'll sign a copy if you if you send me a request on Facebook. Just private message me, pay for it right on PayPal or with a credit card or whatever you want to do. It's being sold in one store up in uh, Vermont at the Eloquent Page in St Albans. It's a really cool store. Donna will help you out if you call there or go there. And, uh, you know, I was going to try to get into some bookstores in Burlington and stuff too, but it it was just such a rigmarole to do it. And um, she made it easy. Donna made it easy. These other people just kind of made it difficult. And and some of them want, you know, they want 50% of your book. I'm not giving them 50% of my book. I got 20 years of experience in it and wrote it myself. Why do they get 50% of my book, you know? That is a lot, fifty percent. It is. I'd give that money. I'd give that money to the nonprofit before I'd give it to them. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Fair. What is uh, your second book about? Ah, 
I don't know. I knew this material really well. So I don't know. I thought about it. I actually, you know what? I thought about writing one about Lewis Lent, and then I bought the book that you guys had uh, the author Oh, yeah, Hidden Demons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a good book. It was good, yeah. It's very specific. I mean, it's very. it, it could use to write something else on it, but that was very specific, but it was good. I actually contacted the, the uh, Mike Daly over here in Herkimer County. Uh, he was a prosecutor at the time. And I said, Mike, did you know you're in a book? And he's like, no. <laughs> he's like, what book? And I, I told him so. He'll be reading it soon. Well, I do feel like you left a little bit of meat on the bone as far as your uh, bounty hunting career goes. So I look forward yeah. to uh, to reading your follow-up uh, about your uh, bounty hunting adventures. You know, the my publisher wanted me to do specifically just that. He said, just, just do a book about that. And I'm like, it says something weird about writing stuff about yourself. I was really uncomfortable with that in this book because it's like pulling your pants down in public. It's just, you know, that's pri- yeah. a lot of it's private stuff and stuff, you know. <laughs> Not for me. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, though, that so few people know that experience of, of yeah. doing that work that it's a glimpse into a, a world that, that almost every reader wouldn't know anything about. So yeah. even though it might feel self-indulgent on your part, I think there's real value out there for the reader. Yeah. It's uh, some of it was absolute insanity for sure. I mean, just just crazy shit. And it's funny when you're like like we were talking about copsy weird stuff. We would see the weirdest shit. Um, when you deal with people that are really disenfranchised, people that are very dysfunctional, you're gonna see crazy shit. Um, and I think when people read my book, Soto, for instance, his his life. It's just insanity. I mean, how do you come out of that being normal? Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us here today. This was a, uh, a great reunion of sorts and uh, a conversation about your book and about uh, your investigation into the disappearance of Brianna Maitland. We thank you for your time and service. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you guys having me on.